journey through the Scriptures. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. You just flag them down. They'll put a Bible in your hands. You can follow along tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. One of the interesting things as we study the life and the ministry of Jesus is that so much of his time was involved in this ongoing battle with the scribes and the Pharisees over this thing called legalism and the traditions of the Pharisees and of the scribes that were elevated within Judaism at that time, even above the Word of God in terms of authority. And it's very interesting as we study the Word to see how tenaciously Jesus engaged in that battle and fighting against legalism. And the battle is just as great today. Jesus, as he's ministering, he realizes that God's intent for the law and the prophets of the Old Testament had been completely hijacked by the scribes and by the Pharisees. It had become not about what God's law, the law of Moses, said to them, but now it became about all of these man-made laws and traditions that had been added to the Word of God. And that's what legalism is. The Sadducees were the liberals of uh, ancient Judaism. They were the ones that explained away the obvious meaning of the commandments of God in order to make them uh, more lenient or less demanding than they actually uh, were and are. The Pharisees were legalists who took, in, as they would see a commandment of God, they decided within their mind that if this pleased God, then making this commandment twice as hard, or at least 50% harder, would even be more pleasing to God. And so they made the Word of God stricter, more demanding than God intended it to be. Legalism is always born out of pride, out of the idea that we can speak for God and His Word better than His Word speaks for itself. And it not only is always born out of pride, but it always nurtures pride, and it always advances pride. Because legalism is comparative in nature. The legalistic person then not only becomes, it adds their traditions or it adds their stricter understanding of the Word of God, stricter than it all actually is. But then once I do that and I'm obeying these new demands that I've placed upon the Scripture that are beyond the Scripture, then I start to notice everyone who doesn't. And I view them as less spiritual than me. And I view myself as better than them as a result. That's why at the end of chapter 11, when Jesus stood up in this great crowd of people and a very large and significant religious group of people, scribes and Pharisees, present, and he said to them in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no, there was no rest under the oversight of the Pharisees. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as Jesus declared this, standing on one side and on the other side, all of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people understood it immediately, and they realized, do you mean to tell me that a relationship with God does not look like that, but it looks like you. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the tendency to drift on the part of a significant part of the body of Christ, it's within us. There's a legalist inside of me that I have to keep tamed. And, but this uh, tendency in that direction, Jesus' fight to keep, not just the law and the prophets to wrest it out of the hands of what these Jewish religious leaders had done with it, but he had no intention that then they would then take a hold of Christianity and turn it into something completely different than what he died on the cross to provide and rose again from the dead to provide. And so this battle that was going on and, and all of the uh, fight and this, this uh, continued dealing with the legalism of the Jewish religious leaders, it dominates chapter 12, and, uh, and here we head into it. I, tell you, I was reading this chapter 12 again this week, of course, uh, as a result of touching it, uh, teaching it, and I just thought to myself, Lord, if, if I am or we are as a church adding anything to your word, if, if we are making this harder than it is, if we have added our own ideas and hoops that people have to jump through and all, just show me so that I can see it and I can repent of it. And we see the tendency even in recent history within Christianity where in large sections of Christianity decades ago, a woman could, if she wore makeup, she was not a spiritual person. If she wore pants, she was not a spiritual person. And all of these kind of things that were added on and so foreign to the heart uh, of, of God on things. I may have my own convictions about makeup. I have my own convictions about pants, uh, men and women, or whatever it might be. But uh, those convictions can be my convictions. I don't make them a requirement for everyone else. And so at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. And it was on the Sabbath. Notice that. Very significant on the Sabbath, the Saturday and his disciples were hungry, imagine that, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So, no In-N-Out burgers, no McDonald's, no Taco Bell in those days. You're making your way from village to village, and you're going through what is essentially an agrarian society, and you're hungry, and you're not yet at the next village. And so, here is this field of grain, and you do what you would do as a kid. You know, you just grab a hold of uh, some of it. It would pull off. You put it in your mouth, and you would chew it for nourishment until you could sit down for uh, a proper meal. What the disciples are doing in, ver in verse 1 was not a violation of the law of Moses. They were free to do that. The law of Moses commanded that you could not reap the field. You could not harvest the field. But to partake in this way was not a violation of the law of Moses. But it was a violation of the legalism and the interpretation of the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath, concerning the Pharisees. And so in verse 2, the Pharisees, when they saw it, they said to Jesus, and notice that they don't complain to the disciples, they complain to Jesus, because what they're trying to do with him continually at this point in the ministry is to somehow make it appear be, to, before his followers that Jesus is somehow contrary to the law of Moses and contrary to the law of the Sabbath, that they're in conflict with one another so they could then break the strength of his support. And so when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. Not true, but it was a violation of their incorrect interpretation of the Sabbath law. 
And then Jesus, he responds uh, to them. And he, his response is an interesting one. He gives them three examples to show how they are out of touch with the heart of God and their interpretation of the Sabbath law. What is interesting here, Jesus said to them, have you not read? And he, uh, he speaks of that, uses that terminology in verse 3, then again in verse 5, and then again in verse 7 as he introduces these three examples to show that they're out of touch with the heart of God concerning the Sabbath. When he says to them, have you not read, that would have been so offensive to them. They were the experts in the law of Moses, or at least they thought so. And so when he is saying, have you not read, the idea is that they haven't been thorough in their study or complete or rightly dividing the word of truth concerning uh, the Sabbath law, and that's why they were in trouble. And so he's going to give them a Bible study. Nobody taught these people the Bible. They taught everybody else the Bible, and he's doing it publicly. He said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. And Jesus confesses that when David ate that showbread, as is recorded there in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he is fleeing Saul for his life with the men that are with him. They're out in the wilderness. He is completely innocent. They have no food. They need food. And Abimelech, who was the priest at the city of Nob, said, we don't have any bread when David approached. All we have is the holy bread, and, and so we can give that to you. And David said, I'll take it, and the priest gave it to him. It wasn't lawful for that to happen, but David took it, and the priest gave it to him, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And it's interesting as he uses this example of David, David broke the law of Moses, reminded them of the time when he did, but interestingly enough that in the entire account in the Old Testament and on the part of Jesus in the New Testament, God did not condemn David, though he technically violated the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying is essentially is that everyone who reads that account from David's early life realizes that David did not violate the spirit of the law by eating the bread and that God understood that, that he had mercy for that. And Jesus is in essence asking these Jewish religious leaders, would they have rather seen David die of starvation as opposed to becoming the greatest king in their history? And Jesus is, in essence, declaring that the Sabbath law was never intended to push innocent, hungry men towards salvation, uh, starvation, rather, especially when their hunger was due to the sins of others. And so God looked at this. David did what was wrong. But when a person, you put yourself in a place in like the, uh, the Nazi concentration camps or all kinds of horrific conditions that people find themselves in the world today, and here is the technicality of the law of Moses, and then here is someone, if I hold to the technicality of the law of Moses, this person will lose their life. And Jesus is saying, we all understand the importance of the law of Moses that it is to be obeyed in its entirety, but in those very rare circumstances where somebody's very life hangs in the balance over 
overlooking, uh, uh, looking at it in a gracious kind of way that a person's life, their welfare in that situation, it takes precedence over the law of Moses. Not as a rule concerning the law of Moses, but in those extraordinary circumstances when here you have this priest at Nob and he looks at it and he's torn. Do I give this to David or do I let him starve? And he gave the bread to David and God didn't have a problem with it. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? He said, You're worrying about my disciples and uh, taking a handful of grain on the Sabbath day because of your interpretation of work on the Sabbath day. He said, Have you ever given any consideration to the priests in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day? It's interesting that the priests work the entire Sabbath day. In fact, on the Sabbath day, the number of sacrifices that were offered to God were twice as many as on any other day. They were very busy. And you want to see somebody work? Watch a butcher work before there were power tools. And that's a hard, sweaty, difficult job that they were doing. And yet within the Sabbath law, God had the priests there uh, giving themselves, doing incredible amounts of work on the Sabbath day when everyone else was resting. In other words, the spirit of God's Sabbath law, it applied to everyone in the same way, but it didn't apply the same way practically. The priests worked so that others could rest. And did the Pharisees hassle the priests for working on the Sabbath in the temple in Jerusalem as they were hassling Jesus and his disciples? No. In fact, they esteemed them highly for being faithful to God. And why did they do so? Because they recognized concerning the priests that the Sabbath itself is of secondary importance compared to the work that was necessary for the sanctuary on the Sabbath. And then he went further, and he said, and and Jesus uh, spoke to them in verse 6, and he said, and yet I say to you in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, have you not read, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." So Jesus, again, this is not the first time that he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to the Jewish religious leaders. And Hosea 6, 6 declares, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And what Jesus is saying is that God's mercy should guide any interpretation of his law and any application of his law so that We do not condemn the guiltless. And the disciples were guiltless in this uh, particular place. The disciples were not being uh, condemned by God at all. And the interesting thing is that the Pharisees never understood the heart of God. They never understood what Hosea was talking about. And this is so important for the person, the Christian, whose relationship with God is strongly loaded toward their intellect. There's nothing wrong with worshiping God with our minds. Jesus said that we're to worship God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. 
But there is a certain kind of person who has a tendency to drift into legalism, to become a Pharisee. And most often, it is the person who relates to God most strongly, not in the emotional realm, but in the intellectual realm. They love to explore His truth, the depth of the truth, the beauty of the truth, and their relationship with God is almost entirely loaded into their mind. And here God is warning the Pharisees, and He's warning the Pharisee and each and every one of us, and especially for those of us who have a tendency to be very strongly loaded in that direction, those that are more intellectual in a relationship with God as opposed to emotional that when we view God's law and we interpret it and then we apply it to our own lives and the lives of other people, that number one, we are to remember mercy. And when in doubt about how to apply the Word of God to a situation, to always err if we are going to err on the side of grace. And, and, and then not, as he speaks about sacrifice, and then whatever we do, we are not to read more sacrifice or more hardship into God's commandments and then assume that that pleases God because it doesn't. And that is the best way, Jesus says, to interpret the law of Moses or the Scriptures and then to apply the Scriptures and how to do so by staying in touch with the heart of God. That is how not to condemn the guiltless. And when Jesus, in verse 8, He declared Himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, He is declaring to them that He is the authority on the Sabbath that they were not the authority on the Sabbath. Jesus is the authority on everything, and they were on the wrong side of Jesus. Anytime we find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus, we are wrong on that issue, and they just would not accept it. They just continued to fight Him and fight Him and fight Him. And when Jesus declares Himself as the Son of Man being Lord even of the Sabbath, He is declaring Himself to be divine. They understood it because the Sabbath had its origin in God and in the law of Moses, the law of God. Well, this battle concerning the Sabbath then continues on into verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And the synagogue, we're told in other Gospels, was in Capernaum. And behold, there was a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand. We know from Mark's Gospel, this is a setup. They brought this man on the Sabbath day. Again, very important to notice. They bring a man in with a withered hand. He's got a, it's like a claw. like he can't, he can't move it. He has no use of it. And they bring him into that synagogue, knowing that Jesus is going to come into the synagogue with the idea now of trapping him to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath day. And if he did heal him on the Sabbath day, then to bring an accusation against him that Jesus is not serious concerning uh, the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath. And so the, here they come, Jesus comes into the synagogue, and here is this man with a withered hand. And they asked Jesus this. They said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they did so that they might accuse him, again, that it's a trap. According to their interpretation of the law of Moses, you could not heal on the Sabbath day. In other words, if a person was bleeding, you could put a tourniquet on and, a, and some kind of a bandage upon their wound in order to stop the bleeding, but you couldn't fully treat the wound. That had to wait till the next day. If a person had a broken bone, you could make them comfortable, but you could not set it on the next day. 
God didn't talk about these things. This is where they took the law of Moses and their interpretation made it stricter than it actually uh, was. And so they said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What is interesting to me is that they recognize Jesus' power to heal. I mean, it's like between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there's this 400 years of silence, of virtually no supernatural activity of God in the history of the Jews. Jesus shows up on the scene like an atomic bomb. I mean, you've got people getting healed all over the place, people being raised from the dead, people being cleansed of their leprosy. It wasn't like this thing was going on every day and oh, ho, hum, here is Jesus just carrying on the tradition. Jesus broke the silence of those years in an explosive way. And what they ought to have done is to look at what he was doing, the healings that he was doing, and recognize that God is in our midst in a special way. But instead, they decide they're going to oppose him. And, and so they ask. I mean, it just, it's, just, it's insane, actually, rather than bowing their knee and saying, the power of God is in this man. What does he have to say to us? Now they know that he can heal on the Sabbath day. He can heal at will, and yet... Rather than come to the logical conclusion that that brings you to, and that is to worship him, they're still trying to trap him. It's interesting to me, and I think it's a wonderful, wonderful lesson, that as they trap Jesus, they know something about him that makes him easy to trap. And what they knew about Jesus was that when he walked into any environment or room that he walked into, his attention immediately went to the person with the greatest need. They had no concern that in putting this man with the withered hand in that room that he would be overlooked by Jesus for the size of the crowd. They knew he would spot them immediately. Isn't it wonderful to be known as a person and to be so like Christ as to walk into any environment that we find ourselves in, even in church, and that our attention would go to the person in that room or in that fellowship hall or in that high school room, our attention go to the person with the greatest need and then to go and meet that need. It's the heart of Jesus. It so characterized his life that they used this knowledge of him to try and trap him in this situation. What kind of a crazy old church would it be if every single person came to church and said, everywhere I go there today, I am going to find the person with the greatest need, and I'm going to endeavor to meet that need. Wow, it'd be like Chip and Dale at the hole in the ground. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. It would be amazing, and it's important to realize it. Because the culture, again, that we live in is so selfish, so self-dominated, it so nurtures it within us that it's very easy for church to become a bless-me club. Well, they didn't do this for me, and they didn't notice this, and nobody this, and nobody, and nobody, and nobody, and nobody, and we don't even realize how far our hearts are from the Lord and all of it to walk into an environment, give our lives away. That's where life is really found. So mark the life of Jesus that they could trap him with it. And so Jesus said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? No answer. Isn't it interesting 
but in all their tightening of the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath and suffocating men and women with their interpretations, they never did so concerning their animals. They never tightened it up and, and made it so demanding that they couldn't pull one of their animals out of a pit. It's a very selective in how they handled all of it. And so there was no answer to them. Which of you would, on the Sabbath, if your animal, your sheep, went into the pit, would not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of course, all of them would. They're in church. They can't lie. And then he said, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep, and therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, as he's trying to disciple them concerning the Sabbath, when you interpret God's Sabbath law, remember it is always okay to do good on the Sabbath. It will never be a violation of God's intent for the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. This is a wonderful ministry, or not even ministry. It is a, a Christian, uh, Christian, victorious Christian life principle. Here is a man, Jesus speaks to him and says, stretch out your hand. His hand is completely withered. He hasn't been able to use it. If he could stretch out his hand, he would stretch out his hand. What are you doing to him, Jesus? Are you... Are you fooling with a cripple? Are you making fun of him in front of a whole crowd? Jesus has him stand, we know from the other gospels within that synagogue, has him stand in front of everyone and gives him the command. But with the command, Jesus also gave him the ability to obey the command. And that is true of every commandment of God in his word. And the key is to then apply it to the crippled places in each one of our lives where we look at it and say, I can't change this. I've been crippled forever. I've been crippled from my mother's womb on this issue. I've been crippled since I was a teenager on this issue. I can't break this habit. I can't break the hold that this thing has upon me. And then the, my life becomes withered in that area. How to get victory on it, to find out what does God's Word speak to me concerning that situation, and then to obey it, and to step out then to obey it, is to find that I have the power to obey it, and then freedom and healing comes to me in that particular area of my life. God never gives a command in his word except that he couples it with his power to then obey that commandment, and we are made whole as a result. And then the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. Perfectly logical, you know, uh, response to all of this healing that he's doing and wonderful things. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. It's wonderful. He talked with the Pharisees. He debated with the Pharisees. He challenged the Pharisees. But he did not let them draw him away from the multitudes. 
the people that were out there waiting, not to debate him, not to argue with him, not to fight with him, but to hear his truth and to experience his power. And Jesus didn't let himself get hijacked by this other group. He went out among the multitudes, and they followed him, and he healed them all. And yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And then wonderfully a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name... Gentiles will trust. And so here is Jesus now, and as he then heals the multitudes, they have a beef with him in terms of what he's doing. They don't want to acknowledge him as the Messiah. He just continues to heal, continues his ministry. It's just heaping upon evidence upon evidence that he is the Messiah and that he ought to be believed in and trusted in. And then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. Stop. How hard would it be to be both blind and mute in life? And then on top of that, to be demon-possessed. I've never been blind a day in my life. And I've never been mute a day in my life. And I've never been demon-possessed a day in my life. And here this man has this trifecta of awfulness within his life. And so here he is in that condition, and wonderfully Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And this evidently happened with the casting out of the demon. And here is the absolute rational response to all of it. And all of the multitudes were amazed. And that word amazed in the Greek means their jaw is down. You know, like in the cartoons where the jaw drops all the way down to your feet. Their eyes are as big as Marty Feldman's eyes. They are shocked and stunned and amazed. And then they come to the proper conclusion concerning Jesus as a result of this miracle. Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, uh, heard, heard this, that the people were beginning to recognize in a greater and greater measure that Jesus was the Messiah, when they heard that, it was a threat to their power. It was a threat to their religious racket that they were involved in. And they then chose to explain the fact that this demon had been cast out of this man and that Jesus did it based upon the power of Beelzebub. He did it on the basis of the devil. He was casting out the devil and the devil's power. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, that's a remarkable line to cross. It is one thing to look at Jesus as they might have in just a carnal honesty and said, we don't like him. We don't like his teaching. 
We don't like his popularity. It is a threat to our religious system, our interpretations of the law of Moses. It is a threat to our money-making operation and what we have turned religion into. That would have been fair, at least on a carnal, physical level. Here, they are so determined to explain what all of the arrows that point only to Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God away that they're willing to explain his casting out of demons of people that this has been done now as a result of Jesus doing it in the power of the devil, that he was of the devil and that he was empowered by the devil to do so. But when Jesus knew their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his his kingdom stand? And so Jesus here, as he speaks to the Jewish religious leaders, he has a fourfold response to the insanity of of their interpretation of him and his actions. And first, he declared that their accusation to be completely illogical, that kingdoms do not expand by fighting themselves, and that Satan isn't going to participate in the destruction of his own kingdom. He is not going to participate in demons being cast out of people that he has demon-possessed. So Jesus declares that their conclusion is completely illogical. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the devil, by whom then do your sons, speaking of their physical sons, but probably mostly speaking of their followers, their disciples, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom then do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And so he declared their accusation against him to be unfair and for it to be inconsistent. They had, uh, there were Jews in those days who were, as we saw, see in the book of Acts, there were uh, itinerant exorcists in those days, people who had a power from God. God used them to cast demons out of people's lives. And so they would go, they would cast out a demon. Some of these people would be, have been disciples of the, uh, in God's grace of the uh, Pharisees or their literal sons of the Pharisees. And when a demon got cast out of another person, they never looked at their son and said, my son is doing this in the power of the devil. They always recognized that it was being done in the power of God. So why come to a different conclusion about the power that Jesus is operating in because they're not being honest and they're being inconsistent in how it is that they're uh, uh, viewing things. Consistency would mean that they would attribute the success of both Jesus and their sons in exercising demons out of people to to take and to ascribe it to God or to attribute uh, the success of Jesus and the others, then both of them to the devil. But you couldn't indiscriminately split the ranks for no reason and say, this one is doing it under the power of God and the other is is not. He's doing it in the power of the devil. That was dishonest and it was hypocritical. And Jesus confronted them concerning it. And then he said, but, I ca- but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come among you. 
And nobody could doubt that he was casting out demons. He's already laid the foundation for it in the power of God. Then surely here's the conclusion to come to, that the power of God, that the uh, kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house? That is a person who's possessed by the devil. The devil doesn't just give people up easily. He said, how can one, uh, how, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? He's greater than the devil, and then he will plunder his house. And so here Jesus tells them that the only obvious and logical conclusion an honest person would come to here regarding the life of Jesus, the casting out of demons and so forth, is that he casts them out by the Spirit of God, that the kingdom of God is in their midst of a truth. And since Jesus was able to come in and cast out demons, it means that he is greater than the devil. I, I remember as a boy... How th I just think about how thankful I am that Jesus, as he describes himself here, he describes himself as the stronger one. The devil is a strong one. Jesus spoke of entering into a strong man's house. When he has a hold of a human life, he does not give that up easily. And yet when Jesus comes in, as he's doing continually here and as he continues to do to this day, and, he, and people are delivered of their demons in Jesus' name, there is the recognition that God and Jesus is greater than the devil. What if there wasn't someone who was greater than the devil in this world? It's wonderful that he is. I remember when I was a boy, my mother struggled in life, and um, sometimes she would end up at Napa State Hospital, and in, she would usually have a very difficult episode that in the initial days of it, it was basically like a mental health, mental hospital incarceration. In other words, they would put her in the very, very depths of that state hospital. And I remember when we would go and visit her only a handful of times when she was not in the outer wards but in this inner place, and they would take us through one door and then open it up, lock it behind them, and then open up the next door, lock it behind them, open up the next door, and lock it up behind them. And as a young boy, I'm certainly not saying this about everybody that was in that location, but I realized as a young boy there is a demonic dimension in this place and how thankful I was to realize number one that my mother was saved for all of her struggles and to realize there is a God who is greater than the devil what if there wasn't a God who was greater than the devil what a hell this world would uh, would become and so thankful that Jesus is the stronger man greater is he that is in us First John 4, 4, than he that is in the world. And as the old joke goes, every once in a while, you got to pull that four by four out. John 4, 1 John 4, 4, and hit the devil over the head with it. You know, when he doesn't understand the truth of it, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And then Jesus declared, and he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And Jesus is declaring there that just as this Satan's kingdom is not divided, it's never divided, neither is God's kingdom. You're either in or you're out. It's interesting, the devil never shares. He's never willing to share a human life with God. He just isn't. 
He's completely possessive of what is his. But what is true of the devil in an evil way is wonderfully true of, the God, of God in a holy way, in a powerful way. And, and that is here as he speaks here in, in the idea that Jesus is not interested in sharing any person with the devil. That the child of God is to be as fully committed to God as any child of the devil is committed to the devil. The devil is not willing to, to satisfy himself with lukewarm followers or one foot in his realm and one foot in another realm, and the kingdom of God isn't willing uh, to have those kind of disciples uh, any more uh, than he is. He was not with me, Jesus said, is against me. There is no neutrality in this world. I am either for God or I am against God or I am for the devil, or I am against the devil. And so here is this beautiful, beautiful demonstration of his power, and then Jesus taking and giving them a lesson on the false accusation that they brought against him. And then Jesus begins to speak about what is known as the unpardonable sin, or as my friend Joseph Perdome, the pastor of Calvary Chapel at Solano, calls it the unpardonable sin. He's French-Canadian. I mean, even the French with that accent can make the unpardonable sin sound romantic, can't they? It's awful. They should never teach this passage of the Bible. They should always bring an, uh, some Englishman in uh, to do it. And so Jesus now warns them concerning committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to Come. And so Jesus warns them of this sin that will not be forgiven. He repeats that twice within the passage. Whatever this sin is, it leaves a person damned for eternity. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin is not if you were growing up and there some, came some point in life and some trial or difficulty that you didn't understand what God was doing and before you're a Christian and on, you raised a fist to God and you said, I hate you and I want nothing to do with you that you would let something like this happen to me. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't backsliding, uh, or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't someone who's rejected salvation up to this point in their life. The, ba ba the uh, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what it is, is the Bible teaches that there's only one sin that's uh, unforgivable in life, and that sin is a lifelong rejection of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring me to a faith in Christ. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is in life is to reject Christ all of my life and then to die in that condition. Somebody says, well, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Why is it called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict us of sin and to lead us to Christ. Do you realize that as you sit here this evening as a Christian and you realize the miracle that you are,
and you realize how much work God went through to open your eyes up to His truth and, and so that you would be saved tonight, do you realize that God is working in that same strength to that same degree in every single human being's life that doesn't know Jesus yet in the world today? He is trying to lead them to Christ, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of everlasting life. But if a person is determined to ignore the voice and the prompting and the wooing of the Holy Spirit all of their life and is determined to die dead in their sins, their last breath still living in rejection of Christ, then they will have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they will have died then uh, apart from Christ and committed the unpardonable sin. And that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, a lifelong rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important to recognize in this passage that Jesus does not say that they had committed the blasphemy with the Holy Spirit. He was only saying that they were in danger of it. In other words, like these religious leaders, when a person is so unwilling to accept the truth concerning Jesus that they're willing to ascribe his miracles to the devil, then that person's heart is so hard and so dangerously hard in their determination to reject him, no matter what the evidence is, that they're in grave danger of ultimately dying in that sinful condition and in that condition of rejecting Christ. And so Jesus here warns them that any person who would be willing to ascribe his power and his life so holy, so pure, to being a work of the devil was in danger of ultimately dying one day, uh, separated from Christ and separated from salvation. So often a person can sit in a room like this and very often think, I can't be saved, I committed the unpardonable sin. I've run into many people, no more than two handfuls of people in 31 years of ministry in Modesto, but people that believe, I can't be saved. They love God. They want to serve God. They want to walk with God, all of these things. But they believe that one day in the middle of the night in frustration, you know, even as a Christian, that they yelled at God and they said something that was undeserving, you know, to God in this way. And now I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Nobody who's still on this side of death has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Anyone can be saved. God is willing to save us. And then Jesus goes on in verse 33, and he exposes the source of their statement there, of ascribing his, his power uh, to the devil. And the source of that was not Jesus' life, but it was their own wicked hearts. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. All Jesus was doing was performing good works, one after another, after another, after another. Logical conclusion, this is a good tree. This is not of the devil. And so in the same way that they were able to assess a tree, this is a good tree on the basis of the fruit that comes out of it, why would they take and turn everything on its head now in their assessment of Jesus and say, all of this good fruit is coming out of a bad tree? All of this good fruit is coming from the devil. 
And their assessment of Jesus, their wrong assessment of Him, did not come out of Jesus' life, but it was a revelation of the wickedness of their own heart. They were revealing their own heart. And I'll tell you, what a person does with Christ and what a person concludes concerning Jesus and the life of Jesus as it's recorded in the Scriptures, it is never ultimately a reflection on Him at all. It is always a reflection of our own heart, whether in believing in Him unto salvation or rejecting Him unto damnation. Now, he then goes on and says, brood of vipers, all right? So he's strengthening his tone here a little bit. He says, how can you, being evil, all right? Who can play this game? But now you're going to play this game with God? You want to call me evil without any evidence? I'll call you evil, and I'll bring forth the evidence. Again, all of this is happening in public. He said, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's a beautiful passage. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of our mouths, everyone, but certainly true of a Christian, is an indication of our heart. When somebody says something, it comes out of our mouth, and then the person says, oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, yes, you did mean that. It was in your heart. That's why it came out of your mouth. What comes out of our mouth is always an indication of the condition of our heart. It is always like the uh, thermometer for the health of our heart, what it is that comes out of our mouth in the capacity of speech. It isn't just words. It's a reflection always of our heart. And look at what's coming out of their mouth, ascribing Jesus, His holiness, His miracles here uh, to the devil, just the worst. That's worse than swearing. I mean, it, and I'm not advocating either of them, but I mean, it's, it's just awful. And then he, he said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Your assessment of me is an evil, what you've spoken, and you've spoken it because your heart is evil. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, that they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, I've heard people preach on this. In fact, a pastor that I like very, very much, I even uh, heard him recently uh, refer to this, and he's speaking to a Christian congregation and the fact that every single word that we've ever spoken in life, one day we're going to give an account for every word that, uh, that we have spoken. But that's not what God is saying. Wouldn't that horrify you, you know, if that's what? The context here and what Jesus is talking about is these are the all words that are spoken concerning Jesus as a means or a reason for rejecting him as my Savior and as my Lord. One day, all of those words, 
And they were speaking a lot of words, trying to give reasons for rejecting him as Messiah and as Savior and as their Savior and as their Lord. And the Lord is saying that one day, the words out of every single person's mouth that has come out as an explanation for rejecting Christ and making him my Savior, they're going to be put to the test. And one day, no longer in like this ivory tower in some academic center in the United States of America where people are free to rail on God and rail on Jesus and without any kind of consequence of it. And in fact, they're elevated in people's esteem as a result of all of it. But one day, every person is going to stand before Jesus alone. And then they will present their arguments for why they have rejected him. And Jesus is saying, then in that day, when you face me face to face, we'll see how the argument goes. And may I say, it will not go any better for anyone alive today as it did for the Jewish religious leaders 2,000 years ago as it's recorded in this passage and we're studying here um, this evening. And then some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And the idea is if you would give us uh, a sign, then we would believe in you as the Messiah. Well, they didn't believe in any of the signs up to now. He's just cast out a man who is both blind and mute, possessed of a demon. He's taken, healed the withered hand of a man within the synagogue, has had no impact upon their life at all. But they give, it's a pretension. They're giving the idea that if you would just give me, give us just one more sign, we're really honest seekers. We really will come to believe uh, in you. We just need one more sign. And Jesus answered and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That is a sign of their own choosing. They had signs all around them by the thousands uh, giving evidence to him as the Messiah. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus is speaking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's giving them the sign of his resurrection, that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. And then I'll be resurrected. He's speaking about the sign of his resurrection. And so that's the sign. They demand the sign. And then Jesus uh, declares that sign to them. And Jesus knew that no matter what miracle he gave to them, it would never be enough because they, weren't, uh, they were determined not to believe. How many of these men became believers in Christ after his resurrection? They weren't honest seekers. They're playing a game with them. And then Jesus warns them here. And he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. You remember in the Old Testament when God called Jonah, very reluctant prophet, yes, called him to take a message to Nineveh and warn them of coming destruction. And Jonah tries to get away from the calling. He hated the Ninevites. 
He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want anything to do with that call of God because he knew God, if they repented, God would forgive them, and he didn't want them forgiven. He wanted them to be a, a smudge on the face of the earth from his, God's judgment. So God makes him willing to go, and he goes, and he comes on the scene in Nineveh, and this is the message he declares to the Ninevites. Forty days, and then comes destruction. Forty days, and then comes destruction. Forty days, and then comes destruction. It is a graceless message. It is a message without hope. There's not even a call to repentance. There's no hope about the message at all. And here is Jonah. He goes into the city and he declares a lesser message, a message without hope to the Ninevites. And then the entire city repents of their sin and turns from it, and God spares the city. The men and women of Nineveh responded to a lesser offer from God. And then he speaks here of the queen of Sheba, who then will rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And you remember that the Queen of Sheba traveled 1,200 miles over land to come to Jerusalem just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She travels 1,200 year, 1,200 miles rather, to hear this wisdom. And here as Jesus has come, he hasn't asked anyone to travel 1,200 miles to hear the gospel or to receive the gospel or the message. Jesus comes from heaven itself into human history and brings this message, a wisdom greater than the wisdom of Solomon to mankind and to these scribes and to these Pharisees, which they were rejecting. And here is the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. She responded favorably to a lesser wisdom of Solomon, and here they are rejecting the greater Solomon of God. It will be an awesome thing when a person in this age, not before Christ, but after his death and his burial and his resurrection, for one, someone to stand one day before God having rejected Jesus, a superior message to any message anyone heard in the Old Testament, a greater wisdom and a greater hope brought nigh to us by the Son of God coming from heaven in order to deliver it. And when any person stands in that great judgment, the white throne, and wants to complain or give an excuse for the reason that they've rejected Christ, millions of people, tens and hundreds of millions of people who came to faith in Christ with less evidence, with less miracles, with less uh, demonstrations of God's power will stand up and, and say, we believed in him uh, having experienced less than you've experienced. And they will condemn any unbelief in that day. Isn't that something? The entire city of Nineveh is going to stand in that hour and, and uh, the queen of Sheba herself and stand up and condemn any unbelief directed toward Jesus. And when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, the demon gets cast out of a person, 
He goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. And then he says, I'll return to my house, the body that I was cast out of, from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty and swept and put in order. And then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, and so it shall also be with this wicked generation. One of the things that Jesus is declaring here is here you have a person, a demon has been cast out of that person, but the house, the body remains empty. And, and there is no protection in that person's life from demons coming in and taking possession of their life once again. The only protection, the only foolproof protection against demon possession is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the importance of being born again by the Holy Spirit, and once we are born again by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and now no demon can take possession of our life. I, I do agree. I remember listening as a new Christian, listening to Pastor Chuck as he taught concerning demons and demon possession and this kind of thing. I do believe that in general, that's a qualifying statement, I believe that in general that a person, in order to be possessed by a demon, they, they have to open a door of some kind. There's a portal somehow that they open up, whether they're dabbling in the occult or they're playing with Ouija boards or they're going tarot cards or whatever kind of a thing or even within their family, voodoo or whatever it might be, that somehow a door gets opened up for a demon to go in. We don't see in the human condition, both in the ancient world and today, see demons just coming in and out willy-nilly into any life that they want to. But they do go into lives where an opening has been given to them. I don't say that it's always true, but I think it's generally true. And the single and only great protection against the devil and demon possession is to not only have my life uh, cleansed of the devil or to be, even have the devil cast out of my life, but then the importance then of believing in Christ and having the Holy Spirit come into my life. And while he was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother... And his brothers, they stood outside of the meeting, and they were seeking to speak to him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered, and he said to the one who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand, not toward his mother and brothers, but toward his disciples. And he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, the person who becomes one of Jesus' disciples enters into a relationship with him that is deeper than even the strongest of family and earthly ties. An amazing relationship that has been opened up to us by being born again as Christians. It is alarming, I think, for those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, I shouldn't say alarming, but I say it's instructive that we do see here that, G that Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin as is taught. She did, her and Joseph, have other children after Jesus was born. 
And further, there's this idea that, we, uh, that people are to pray to Mary. And the logic is something like this, that um, a mother has a special kind of hold upon a son. A son will do whatever his mother uh, wants him to do. So there's this special relationship and this special pull. And so if you really want to get through to Jesus, then get through to him by way of his mother, by praying to Mary. But Jesus taught very, very clearly all the way through his ministry that whatsoever you ask in my name, that you shall receive. He never, ever pointed anyone toward praying to him in any other name than his name or to anyone other than himself. Jesus cannot be more motivated than he already is to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers and to bless us. No one can make him more motivated, not even Mary. And so it's a great mistake on the part of the Roman Catholic Church in, in a couple of areas, areas concerning uh, Mary and the passage takes and instructs us not to waste our time with that kind of thing. Jesus, again, Jesus cannot love us more than he already does. He cannot be for us more than he already is. He can't be more eager to answer our prayers than he already is. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the richness of this passage. And as we've looked at it tonight and studied it, we see that its application and the truths and the necessity of these truths aren't just 2,000 years old, but the same tendency towards legalism, the same goofy arguments that are made for rejecting Christ, the same foolish um, explanations for the life and the ministry of Jesus are as prevalent today as ever they were 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for not only exposing it today, but exposing it in our own lives so we don't invest a moment in our life in those things and fall prey to the things that are a part of our flesh as well. And Father, we thank you for the security of our lives as Christians. Thank you that the stronger man has come into our hearts and into our life, and that the less strong man, strong as he is, the devil, can no longer come into our lives and torment us in that way. And we thank you, Lord, in regards to this last thought that we've considered from your chapter tonight. We thank you that you have made a way for people like us to know an intimacy with you, Jesus, that was and is greater than the intimacy that you knew with your mother and with your brothers and with your sisters, Lord. Thank you for making it possible. We bless you for the life that we have the privilege to live. And we bless you, Father. We bless you, Son. We bless you, Jesus, in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Sam,